Well, hey, if you have a Bible, get it out, and we'll try to use it tonight. We'll do our best. <laughs> We're going to be digging, continuing to dig in the Second Thessalonians. I've, I've gotten so much out of these two letters. Um, I think people sometimes are under the impression that, you know, whoever's getting up and teaching or preaching the word is just getting up because they know everything and they, they just are, are somehow giving out of their largesse, like, you know, I, I have so much, I, I should probably give it away. But the truth is, is that when we get up, you know, we, and, and when I get into the word and in prayer to prepare for these times where we get together, I'm getting just as much, if not more, out of it. And so I get excited as we go through these letters because it, it builds my faith, it builds me up. And um, I, I think the coolest thing is that we could be reading letters, and we are reading letters, that were written thousands of years ago, and they still are so relevant today. Yeah. That's an amazing thing. That's, that's something that can only happen with the living Word of God. You know, the living Word of God, when, when you believe that the Word is alive, it changes how you approach everything, because when you believe it's alive, you don't just say, this is what God said. You say, this is what God is saying that it's alive right now. And, and, and the cool thing about that is, is that we believe in a God who lives outside of time. So God is not encountering situations like you and I, just kind of moving through time at a linear rate, just saying, wow, I wasn't expecting this. Whoa, they elected Trump. Whoa, this, oh, Trudeau. You know, he's not like just learning about stuff. He's, he's, he's always been. So he's, you know, when, when this was written, he was as much in our time as he was in their time. He's outside of it. And so, you know, there are cultural touch points. There are things that, that probably would differ on, on how, we're, how we're living as people in 2017. There's some things that you would interpret in the light of where they were and, and, and what was going on. But the foundational truth, the roots to all of this stuff, it hasn't changed because God is ageless. God is timeless. And so we read this and, and it, it feeds us and, and it makes us alive and it gives us some answers and, and some hope. And I hope that's what that happens. I hope that's what happens tonight as we get into the word of God. So let's just open our, our hearts in prayer and let's open our, our, ourselves up to God. Lord, we, we thank you that you are a God who has seen us and loved us enough to, uh, not just to leave us as orphans, but to lead and guide us, to send us your spirit, to, to not abandon your people, but to, to shepherd your people. So tonight, we're, we are the sheep of your pasture. We are the sheep of your hand. And we ask you, Lord, because you're the good shepherd, lead us and guide us. Teach us. Discipline us. Correct us. Encourage us. Heal us. Lord, I, I, I believe that tonight, that your word is healing, that your word is life, that your word is a lamp and a light. And so for anybody that needs light into their path, God, I pray that tonight you would flip on the switch for them, that they would see some things they haven't seen before, that um, hearts would be encouraged, and that truly there would be a seed planted in us tonight <laughs> that we will be feeding off of for years to come. We thank you for it. And that would also feed others around us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, a couple weeks ago when we were in this, uh, the topic, the, the thing that was being discussed was the return of Jesus, um, was the day of the Lord and, and, and the implications that that had for the church. And now, um, and, and of course we talked about the, 
the idea of an antichrist or a lawless one as he's described in this letter, and also the spirit of lawlessness. So in this letter, he calls it the man of lawlessness, but it's, it's also said that that lawlessness is already at work. John talks about the Antichrist, but says there's already Antichrists abounding. There's already a spirit of Antichrist. And so there is no person that's going to come and bring something new to the mix that's not already there, right? So if, if you're talking about some, I mean, I think in our movie uh, mentality, we've watched The Lord of the Rings or something, and, and we just think if, if we just beat Sauron, all is better. But the truth is, is that there, there's going to be bad guys rise and fall, but they don't exist in a vacuum. Like, they're not just, it, it's not like Hitler just came out of the ether and was just one really bad dude that just contaminated everybody. I mean, he was created in a system. There was a system of thought that created that man. There was a worldview that created him. And you can trace it back to, to, the, uh, to philosophy. You can trace it back to even the science of the day and see how somebody could come to those conclusions. Was there demonic forces? Was there supernatural forces? Absolutely. But those forces are at work not just in one person. They're at work in our culture. They're at work in the world right now. The Bible says that the God of this world, and it's little g God, right? It's not big G God. It's not the God. When, when it says little g God, we're not talking about a deity. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about a, a, a poser king. We're talking about somebody who has gained control for a season, for a time, that doesn't have the right to that control, but he's got it. And so when we talk about the God of this world, it doesn't mean Satan is a deity. It doesn't mean he's divine. It just means he's controlling some things. And we're talking about the world. It's not even talking about the planet. It's talking about the system of the world. And it says he's the God of this world. In other words, there's somebody at the head of the way the world's running. And that God, little g God, has blinded the eyes of them that believe not so that they wouldn't see the light of the gospel. So there's a whole worldview out there. I mean, we, we talked about this before, but you can like, you could say, you know, now that I'm a believer, I don't watch R-rated movies. But there are G-rated movies that present a worldview that makes war against your soul. I mean, a monkey could make ratings and just live by those. But it takes a discerning believer to say, what do I believe in and, and what am I being deceived by? Listen, we see billboards all around us. We see commercials more than any generation on the planet has ever been advertised to. We're advertised to. We are lied to on a regular basis and we've learned to compensate for that, right? We've learned to live with that, that knowledge. We've, we've learned to, it's made us a cynical group of people because we're so used to being lied to that when the truth comes, we don't know how to accept something. We don't really know how to open our heart to it until we're taught by the grace of God. And the grace of God does teach us. It teaches us how to, to live in a new way. Jesus taught us to live in a new way. Jesus took three years with 12 guys and taught them how to think totally different. And those 12, one of them fell away, and the rest of the 11 took over and, and began something that, that today we're still growing from. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And so the idea is that out in the world and, and, and all throughout the planet, there is a system at work, and it's not God's system. And so, like I said, in our Hollywood mindset, we just like to think there's a bad guy. If we beat the bad guy, it all goes away. But the truth is, 
There's a spirit out there that's affecting a lot of people to varying degrees, and it can even affect us if we're not careful. And what the light of the gospel has done is it's opened our eyes to see it for what it is, and it's given us a way out. The Bible says we were part of the domain of darkness. Do you know what domain means? It comes from the word for Lord, control. Domain means you're under its control. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, into light. So this is good because we're not un under control of darkness anymore. We've got the, the light switches on, our eyes are open, and uh, the trick is now not to be lured back into sleep, but to stay awake and push forward into the thing that God's called us to, into the mission that God's called us to. Because as, as Pastor Josh said on Sunday, God did not call, if God had just called us to, to, to heaven, we would have been raptured the moment we got saved. God's called us to a mission here on earth. There's a job to get done. And, and that's something that we should rejoice in. Even when the mission is hard, we should rejoice in the fact that we've been given that mission because at the end of it, there's a prize. At the end of it, there's a celebration. At the end of it, there's a harvest, and that's worth fighting for. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's talked about this spirit of lawlessness. He's talking about the lawless one. He's talking about the end and, and what it looks like, but then he says this in verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself... And God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal, eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Now, first of all, just look at that. I love that, that when he says, now may are, he's not just like putting a wish into the sky. Like, you know, wouldn't it be great if God did this? He's reflecting the heart of God. This is something that God not, already not only has begun, but is doing in us right now. So he's, he's echoing that. He's saying, may God do this in your life. May you see this in your life. May, may Jesus and God our Father put, you know, do this in your heart, in your mind, in your life. And I love how he says that God our Father has, watch this, has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. So, first of all, why is love past tense? I mean, why, why doesn't he say God who loves us? Because we all agree God loves us, right? So why does he say God has loved us? He's loved us from the beginning, absolutely. But in the New Testament when he says he loved us, there's a, there's a moment in time, you're right, it came from that love in the beginning, but there's a moment in time that was crystallized. There's a moment in time it was shown. There's a moment in time that everything changed, and that was when love was perfectly demonstrated on the cross. Amen. So that's why John says the same thing. He loved us. That's why Paul says it. He loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us while we were sinners. He loved us while we were helpless. And here he says, God, who has loved us. Now, he still loves you, right? It's not like he, he used to love you, but then he got to know you. And you just, <laughs> things slid from there. That's the great fear, right? That's the fear when, you, when you, find so, you find that person that you really want to spend the rest of your life with. The fear is, they like me now, but I've been really holding back. I've been putting on all my, I've, I've, been, I've been doing everything I can not to sneeze in front of them. You know, like I've gone to extremes. It's not that he stopped loving you. It's that we look back and we see this moment. He loved us 
And that love, that loved us was an action, and that was Jesus laying his life down for you. That was God sending Jesus. And there he says he loved us and, this is good, he loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope by what? By grace. So here's the thing. Now, when we think of eternal comfort, like eternal comfort sounds like, it sounds like a slogan of a pillow company or a bed or something, eternal comfort, you know? And, and, and I, 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 for one, love my Bible. I love this translation. Comfort somehow doesn't translate like it should. When you look up this word comfort all throughout, like especially in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians talks about Paul and his buddies just barely escaping death and, and how the church that they're ministering to is under affliction. He says, like, the God of all comfort will comfort you. And they, he's comforted us in our affliction, so now we can comfort you in yours, so now that you can comfort someone else in theirs. And that word comfort, even in the sense of, even when something hard happens, that word comfort, so often we think of it as a, as a soft, there, there, everything's going to be okay. That's what we think when we're talking about comforting somebody that's going through something or comforting somebody that wants to give up. You know, we think of this soft, you know, it's okay, buddy. But when you see it in the scripture, it's actually the word parakaleo, which, which, is, which means somebody that came up beside you and grabbed onto you and held you. Somebody that's called alongside you to help, it's actually one of the words that's used, it's the root of one of the words that's used for the Holy Spirit, the one called alongside to help us. So we're talking about a comfort that is not just like a pillow soft, downy comfort, like, you know, when things are rough, just feel my virtual hug around you, my children. Just feel the softness of my love. Now, sometimes you need that. But the comfort we're talking about is a comfort that keeps you from fainting, from falling, from quitting, from dying. It's somebody standing beside you and saying, I'm not letting you fall. Calling beside you, fighting beside you, standing beside you. A great example that I always go back to, so you've probably heard me say it, is when Paul is at his last trial, or one of his last trials, and he writes to Timothy, and he says, at my last defense, none of my friends, like all these people that I gave my life for, and I, I, I laid my life down for, nobody showed up. Nobody showed up to testify for me. Nobody even showed up at the back to wink at me and say, we're with you. Nobody showed up. So he's not only thinking, I might die tomorrow. He's not only hearing the lies of his enemies, but he's looking out and saying, I've spent decades pouring my life out for people, and everybody's too ashamed of me to show up. So that crushing loneliness, that crushing sense of, was it all for nothing, begins to creep in. He says, I looked out, and my last defense, no one stood up for me. No one showed up. No one came. But then he uses this phrase, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me. And he strengthened me, and he rescued me out of the mouth of the lion. That's one of the most powerful sentences that I know of in the epistles, in the letters that are in the New Testament. Because this this statement of, Nobody was with me. Everybody was against me. But then he just, but he says, but notwithstanding. In other words, like all of that said, there was something that, that wiped all of that out. There was something bigger than all of that. And that was the fact that the Lord himself stood with me. And what happens when God stands with you? 
I mean, is it just sort of like a faint knowledge that he's around? Is it, is it sort of like saying, I'm not alone? I'm sure that's part of it. But he, he, he explains it. He says, the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me. And he rescued me out of the mouth of the lion. I mean, everything feels different when you know that the Lord is standing with you. And when he stands with you, he strengthens you. You know, there's a, a great passage in Hebrews that says, it's talking about the difference between, first of all, it talks about the difference between Jesus and angels, how Jesus is higher than angels. Then it begins to talk about us and how we, through Jesus, we have a far better name. We have a far better place than, than the angels. That's why when someone says, when someone dies and go, well, they're an angel now, heavens no, that's a demotion. You don't want to become an angel. You were created for better things than that. Thank God for angels, but you got a better gig than they do. The Bible says that we have inherited something that angels long to look into. I mean, they wish that they had our deal. We are a different creation. Now, Jesus said that the whole, when you die, you become an angel thing, just comes from a conversation that Jesus had when they're trying to trap him. And they say, what happens if somebody's wife died and he got remarried? When he goes to this heaven you speak of, Who's he married to? Right? Like he gets up there and it's like, ladies. <laughs> Ooh, this is a tough choice. And Jesus says, there's not marriage in heaven. Nobody's given in marriage. Nobody has marriage. He says, they're like the angels in that sense. So all he's saying is you're like the angels as far as marriage is concerned. There's not marriage there. He's not saying you become an angel. You fly around. You sit on a cloud and eat cream cheese. That's not what he's saying. <laughs> Plucking a harp. Well, a little cherry bomb, you know, that this is your reality. No, he's, he's called us to something far more. And so here's the deal. He says in Hebrews, God, for surely God does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham, to the seed of Abraham. And, and, and you ask, well, am I a descendant of Abraham? I'm not Jewish. The Bible says you are. By faith through Jesus, we've been made the descendants of Abraham. We've been grafted in, adopted into that family. And so when, when I see that gives help, that's a cool thing, right? Like he's going to help me. But literally in the Greek, it says, for surely he does not give help to angels, but he takes hold. That's the literal wording. He takes hold of the descendants of Abraham. Now you think if you're falling, if you're, if you're about to give up, if you're dying, whatever, and you just picture God himself taking hold of you. You picture Jesus taking hold of you, grabbing onto you and saying, if you go down, I go down. I mean, that's encouraging. So it says here that God, God has given us eternal comfort. So for the rest of your life, he's standing with you. For the rest of your life, you have help. Eternal comfort and good hope. Give me some of that good hope. Good hope. I don't know what bad hope is, but I like this good hope. Get this good hope, eternal comfort and good hope by grace. So what's he really referring to there? For the rest of eternity, you are tied to something. That grace that's been brought about through Jesus Christ. In fact, that grace that was embodied in Jesus Christ. That has given us an eternal strengthening, an eternal comfort, and it's eternal hope. Hope is always looking ahead, 
right? Hope is, hope is your expectation. Hope is what keeps you going when, the, when you're just slogging through. You know, I mean, when, before I got married, you, you can't tell now that I've ever been to a gym. But before I got married, I put a lot of time in. Thank God for David Freeman who stuck with me. Even when I was probably pretty sad at times. But he was working with me. Made me throw up a couple times. And there were times where you're like, why is somebody doing this to their body? I have better things to do at six in the morning than this. But for the joy set before me, what kept me going? Why am I punishing my body? Because my body just wants some pizza. You know how much salad I ate before I got married? Too much salad. (laughs) You know how much time I just spent doing sit-ups? I had stuff to do. I was doing sit-ups, hurting, running around a, a loop. There's no reason for a human to just run around a loop. I wasn't going anywhere. I'm just going around a loop. Why? Because I had hope. I had hope that so that this body would be transformed and that on my wedding day, I fit into my tux and my wife goes, oh, I'm glad I'm marrying this guy. And I was playing the long con because she didn't know (laughs) that once I was married. Now I tried, you know. (laughs) It was Moses that did us in. It was having a child. I put on that sympathy pregnancy weight, you know, and I just kept it. But, But I mean, that kept me pushing. That keeps you pushing when someone's training, right? When someone's training for the Olympics. Have you ever seen these athletes training for the Olympics? They train for like... Uh, You know, something, I mean, if you're like a 100-meter sprinter, you're training for like eight, nine seconds of your life, if you add the heats onto that, less than a minute of your life. And yet you train for most of your life to get there. But it's all worth it. Because you're looking ahead to, to what's behind this training. What's behind this is a race, and what's behind the race is a is a prize. And when we have this hope, You know, we wonder who in the world could go through what Jesus went through. Well, you say, yeah, but he was the son of God. Yeah, but everything he suffered, he suffered as a human being. He did that. You say, well, I mean, they made him do that. Yeah, but the Bible says he laid his life down. Jesus himself said, you're not taking my life. I'm laying it down. So he said, if I want to, I could call, I could ask the father. He'd send angels. I could get out of this. At no point did he take himself up on the opportunity to get out of it. But the Bible says, for the joy set before him, Amen. he endured the cross. And he laid aside the shame. He counted the shame as nothing. Why? For the joy set before him. So there was something, the, the thing that brought, I mean, because as much as Jesus was the, the prototypical Highest pinnacle of humanity, he was still a person who felt. He was still a human being that could be exhausted and would suffer by torture. He was still a human being who had to bear this stuff. He was a human being who dropped the cross and couldn't go any further until a guy on the sidelines picked it up. He was still a human being who had to endure all that. How did he endure all that without giving up, knowing he could have got out of it? Because he was looking ahead to something. And for us, and for the people that are reading this letter who are going through some stuff, who are being pressed from every side, who are being, uh, the pressure is on to get them to back off what they believe. He says that this grace that's been given to us gave us eternal comfort 
and good hope, that we're looking ahead to something, that our hearts are strengthened by what we see in front of us. That day, that, that day where all of this is made right, that day where justice is finally seen for what it is, that day when there's a reward for those that stood and those that kept going, that gives us hope. And then he says this, and we can't live without hope, guys. You can't. You, you can't do anything for the Lord for any significant period of time without hope. Duty won't keep you going for too long. Fear will produce a shot of adrenaline, and then you'll still give up. But faith and hope and love will keep you going when everything else quits. And he says this in verse 17. May he comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. You know, uh, a few weeks back, we talked about, he said, may God fulfill every desire you have for goodness and the work of faith with power. So we talked about that godly resolve, those moments where you, you know you should do something for the Lord. You know that God has put something in front of you and you resolve to do it. He says, may God fulfill that resolve. You don't have to fulfill it. You have a part to play, but it's God that's doing it through you. And then he says, in the work of faith with power. So behind, after that resolve comes a moment where you have to do something. You can't just sit there hoping, well, if I want it bad enough, it'll happen. At some point, you've got to want it bad enough to stand up and do something. That's the work of faith, but the power is his. And here he says, may he comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Let's just ask, let's just strip this down. Why do your hearts need to be strengthened and comforted? Why? Why? Why is it so important that he do this for every good work and word? Because, like I said before, there is an immense amount of pressure to get you to stop doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying. There's an immense amount of pressure. The moment you start shaking things up, the moment you start moving the ball forward, the moment you start expanding the kingdom of God in your own sphere that God's given you, there will always be pushback. Always. It doesn't matter where you live. I mean, you can live in the most Christian town in the most Christian country and you will still have pushback when you want to do something for the Lord. And it might have felt a little bit more obvious to these guys because they got people with rocks. <laughs> right? But you feel the pushback. You feel the intimidation. How do you know? Because when you go to work and you know that's somebody that's going to die if they don't know Jesus. You're going to die without him. You don't want to see him die without him. But yet you know you're putting something at risk the moment you start opening your mouth and your heart and say, I'm going to share my faith with this person. You know you're risking your job. You're risking your relationships. It's the easiest thing in the world to just go with the flow and just let people like you. But the moment you start saying, no, I'm going to fight for this person. I'm going to fight for this ground. I'm going to fight for my family. I'm going to fight for this. I'm not talking about like the world fights. You know how the world fights? They get their guy in office. They start a petition. They do all of that. That's how the world fights. You know how we fight? We realize that people aren't our problem. The Bible says our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. So we begin to take it on a different level. We approach it in a different way. We say that soul, that heart is worth everything. 
Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gave up the whole world, if he gained the whole world but lost his soul? So do the math. One soul is worth more than the whole world. It's a classic Billy Graham line that maybe you've heard so much it doesn't mean anything to you, but I believe it when he says that if you were the only one on the planet, Jesus still would have died for you because that's how much you're worth. Your worth is, de- is just perfectly, your worth is described, is defined by how much somebody was willing to pay for you. And he was willing to pay with his life. So if that's my worth, that's their worth. If that's my worth, that's the worth of the people I go to, to work with, to go to school with, go to Thanksgiving dinner with. That's their worth. And yet, you know the moment you start seeing it that way. You stepped onto a battlefield. You know, the youth at camp were hearing the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Pastor Josh was preaching it. And what's interesting is he was, he was reading the part about Nebuchadnezzar, how he says, you know, they've, they refuse to bow. They've disobeyed the king's orders. And yet they get called into his court, and he says, I'll give you one more chance to bow down to me and call me Lord and do all of that and I'll let you live. They've already broken the law. He's already said, if you don't bow, you're going to die. And yet he gives them another chance. Why does he give them another chance? Because you realize as you go throughout church history, they always give them another chance. They rarely ever kill them just right out. They love to take them and say, if you'll renounce, we'll let you live. Because I think Satan would rather have a compromised Christian than a dead Christian. He's okay with a compromised Christian. You're not hurting anything. In fact, you might infect the other ones. You might be good for him because if you're, if you're lukewarm, if you're walk, walking through life saying, I used to be excited about that. I used to believe like you do, but now I just, you know. Now you might, you might lead some others down your little path. And so I, I think the enemy loves to give you another chance. Hey, I'll give you a chance to renounce what you believe. I'll give you a chance to shut your mouth. I'll give you a chance to just go back to sleep. But the moment you say no, that's really, that's really the moment you become dangerous. The moment you say, no, 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 I'm standing up for something. I'm fighting for something. No, I'm not going to quit this. And guys, you know, I don't think, I, I, I'm looking back through my own experience. I'm looking back through history. And it's not just like there is just a, a tribe of really brave people. And then there's just a bunch of people that got weak backbones. And, and some people are strong and some people are weak. I, I find that even it's, it's the, the ones that the world thinks are the weakest that stand up and are the strongest. And the reason is, is because it's not your strength that stands in that moment. It's not your willpower that gets you through. It's the strength of your heart, the strength of your faith that carries you. The Bible says, let us not grow weary in doing good. For we will reap a harvest if we don't lose heart. Let's, let's not lose heart. Let's not grow weary. We'll, we'll reap a harvest. We'll get a harvest if we don't faint, if we don't give up. Scripture tells us that we have need of endurance so that after doing the will of God, we might receive what was promised. It says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God, which tells us 
that the difference sometimes between you seeing the victory, you seeing the harvest, you seeing the promise fulfilled in your life is not whether or not you prayed the right prayer, is not whether or not God likes you or not. The difference for most of us is whether we just kept standing or whether we gave up. And the thing that keeps you from giving up is that strength coming out of your heart. Did you lose heart or did you keep it? Here, you're, you're not required. There's no brave heart in the kingdom. Somebody who's just naturally stronger than everyone else. It's, it's really a question of us allowing God to strengthen our hearts. To not quit, to not to give up. <coughs> you know, Jesus in Luke, it says that he was teaching them how to pray in such a way that they wouldn't lose heart. Pray, and he says, he was teaching them a way to pray and not to lose heart. And he tells a parable about a widow, and some of you know this story, where he tells a story about a widow who went to a, a corrupt judge's house, and, and he says, I'm busy, I can't help you. But she keeps coming back. She comes back in the middle of the night, bangs on his door, and he finally gets up, and, and just to get her off his back, says, I'll do what you want. And he says, now that guy was corrupt. That guy was evil. God is righteous. He's not corrupt. So it's not like you're wearing him down. But he says he already wants to, to stand for you. He already wants justice done, but you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to keep going. You're going to have to, you're going to have to, he says, won't he give justice to his people who cry out night and day? The beginning of that parable said Jesus showed him how to pray and not lose heart. So what's he telling us? Sometimes people don't see the results of what they've been praying for because they lost heart. They gave up. Jesus said at the end, people will lose heart. People's hearts will fail them because of fear. The difference between you seeing the end and the result of what you've been praying for, of what you've been fighting for, of what the harvest for what you've been planting is really most of the time whether you stayed at it, whether your heart gave out or whether you kept heart. The end of that parable, he says, will he find faith on the earth? So like you, you read these stories of families in persecuted countries even right now. And you see children. I remember one story. I don't remember the country. But I remember the story of a, of a child. And the enemy soldier who'd come in put a gun to her family's head and said, deny Jesus. And she wouldn't do it. There was another child where they said, just spit on the Bible and we'll let you live. She picked up the Bible and kissed it. These are little kids. So if you just think it's just the brave that survive, just the strong that survive, how do you factor in that grown adults who've been through tough stuff, who've been through war, faint at these weird times, and a little kid says, I'm not going to deny Jesus. How do you explain that? It's got to be God. It's got to be something keeping their heart. It's got to be something strengthening their heart. You know, I've seen three different responses to heart failing, to somebody losing heart. Some people, it's just the obvious. They just freak out. Everybody knows they lost heart because they tell everybody. 
You know, I'm done. I'm done. I don't want this anymore. It's just too hard. And they run away. They put it on Facebook and, and all of their all of their sympathetic friends give them likes and, you know, like, yeah, you've just been too hard on yourself. And they just run away from God the far the other way, dramatically. And everybody knows, ah, oh, they just, that's obvious. I've seen another type where they just slowly step back. And slowly they step back. And they give up this and they do this. And before you know it, they're standing way back there. I'm not talking about physical location. I'm talking about, you know, they were, they were pushing forward in this area. They were pushing in this area. And they just, one by one, they just lay these things down. And they just say, you know, we just got tired. And a third group, this is the interesting one. I've seen Christians that lost heart and just kept going through the motions of doing what they should do. Because they were kind of afraid, I think, on some level, at least this is what it's been in my own life, there was part of it was just a fear of what people would think if I gave up. So you just kind of do the same thing, but there's no passion there anymore. You're not moving forward. You're just trying to keep the boat from sinking too fast. There's no idea of growth. It's just don't let things die. There's no taking new ground. It's just don't lose the castle you have. You're not excited about the things of God, but you're just doing them because this is what we do. Now listen, I'm a pastor's kid, so I could be prone to this third one. Because when I was growing up, there wasn't an option. You mean, my, my falling back, my losing heart was not going to result in me in a dark alley with a needle in my arm. That wasn't my reality. But my reality was just as insidious. Because I just kind of became so lukewarm for a season. Because I had lost heart. And Jesus prayed, he says, I'm praying that you don't lose heart. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Be of good cheer. Keep your heart going. And here's the thing, guys, how, how do we, how, so you might be sitting there going, well, what's going to determine whether I lose heart or I keep it? Well, I think this is a good start. He's praying that God would strengthen their heart. First and foremost, you've got to understand that it's not me that keeps myself going. Until you're willing to trust God with that, until you're willing to put some faith on the line, if you just think this is about me and, and, and how well I can do things, you'll burn out faster than anybody else. Jesus prayed for Peter because he said, Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter, in fact, all of you are going to fall away. And he says, but I'm praying for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. He doesn't say, Peter, I'm praying for you that you're, you just stay as bold as you've always been. He doesn't say, Peter, I'm praying for you that you do the right thing. He says, Peter, here's what I'm praying, that your faith wouldn't fail. Because what's really being tested is not your willpower, it's not your strength, it's not your guts. What's being tested is your faith. So if the thing that was going to keep Peter from hanging himself... The thing that was going to bring Peter back to the place where he could encourage his brothers was his faith. What does that tell you? Faith is your reliance on God. What's going to keep your heart going is saying, you are able to keep me from stumbling. You're able to keep me from falling. How many times in the New Testament does it say that? Unto him who is able to keep us from falling. It was one of the major breakthroughs that we had at youth camp. We had kids that, that said, you know what God did in me? I asked the question, what happens when I fall? And somebody just said, he's able to keep me from falling. 
that all of a sudden they realize, man, it's not me that's got to keep me, it's him. And my faith's got to be in that. That's what's going to keep me from falling. I've got faith that he can keep me from falling. So may God himself, not you, guys, just pump up your heart. You just need to listen to positive messages and positive music all the time. You just need to, you know, when things get tough, just put that image of that cat hanging in there. It says hang in there. Just look at that cat and say, if that cat can hang in there, I can hang in there. Guys, that'll, that'll fail at some point. Tony Robbins is not Messiah. He, he's going to fail you. Right? All the pump you up stuff will eventually fail you. What's going to keep you is God, you need to strengthen. God, I'm putting my hope in you to strengthen and encourage my heart. And guys, we can play a part in this too. The Bible says, encourage, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but keep encouraging one another. Day after day, even more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. The Bible talks about, it says, strengthen the faint-hearted, encourage the faint-hearted. We got a part to play. Now, I'm, t- I'm preaching to you like, if no one else does it, you, you put your faith in God. But now let's flip the script and let's talk about you when you see someone about to faint. You see someone about to give up. What does the Bible say? Encourage the faint-hearted. Our English, I said this on Sunday, our English word encourage comes from the word give heart. To give heart. Encourage the faint-hearted. Look at somebody. Maybe you be that person. Because Jesus is in you. You be that person that stands beside them and says, I'm not letting you fall. I've, I've had, some of you know this. There's plenty of people I, in our church that are going through a tough time. And I'll say, just here's my cell phone number. Just text me if you need someone praying for you. And you don't have to tell me why. Just say, I need some prayer right now. I said, me and Tia, we'll stop whatever we're doing and we'll pray for you. Because sometimes that's just what you need. Sometimes you need a friend that just picks up the phone and says, I'm going to tell you things you already know. And you're going to think I'm a broken record, but I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to pray for you. So it was good enough for Peter. Jesus said, I'm going to pray for you. So he says, may God do this. And we encourage one another. And thirdly, and I'll leave it at this. You got to be holding on to something beyond the moment right now. If your hope, you really got to analyze where's my hope coming from. If my hope is coming from, if I do a good job here, my church will see that I'm doing a good job. Or if you say, if I do a good job here, I won't be embarrassed. If I do a good job, then my kids will see that I'm doing what the Lord said. I mean, all of that's nice, but that's not enough. Your hope's got to be further down the road. Short-term hope produces short-term endurance. If you want to stay in this race, who do you fix your eyes on? Jesus, the author and what? Finisher. My hope is that he started this, he's finishing it. My hope is firmly fixed in the character of God. My hope is not fixed in the fact that I know how this is going to turn out, all the specifics. I do know how this is going to turn out. It turns out with me at the end standing next to him and, and high-fiving Jesus. Well, maybe not that, but, you know, us at the finish line and there's a trophy and there's, there's, there's the end. We've won. But I don't know what path it, get, it takes to get there. I don't know the twists and turns in the race. All I know is if I keep my eyes on Jesus and I keep my hope fixed on his promise, his nature, his character, 
then I can go through anything. I can endure anything. I can suffer anything. I can rejoice through anything because I know that at the end of this, just like I suffered through those sit-ups, my goodness, I suffered through the do another lap. There's no more laps in me. Just do another lap. Suffered through that because I was looking forward to something. Looking ahead. You can endure the pressure because the pressure on the inside is greater than the pressure on the outside. You can endure the strain of just keeping going when everybody else gives up because you know this, he's able to keep me from falling. You can endure a long race because you know what's at the end of the race. And you know that you are assured victory in Jesus. In Jesus. Victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. No victory outside of Jesus, but in him is all. It's all done. It's all completed. It's all accomplished already. We're just walking it out. So that'll give me hope. So my prayer for you, um, in fact, stand with me right now. My 